you're listening to Insight right now, so I know that you love true crime. So let me tell you about this new podcast that I love. So think of a criminal and what are you picturing? Are you picturing a murderer or maybe a thief, a gangster? Are you picturing a woman? You know, you're probably not picturing a woman. And if you look at our back catalog of episodes, we're generally not thinking of women either. So I have to tell you, I am just hooked on this new podcast, Female Criminals. Each episode is a deep dive into the lives of infamous female criminals, giving backstory, details of the crimes, and analyzing the psychology of these criminals, getting that look into their minds so we can better understand their motives. You can check out episodes on The Cocaine Grandmother right now, and with new episodes every Wednesday, you're going to see episodes on Alien Warnos, Mata Hari, many more. Visit Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts and search for Female Criminals. Again, that's F-E-M-A-L-E-C-R-I-M-I-N-A-L-S. Or visit parcast.com slash criminals to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash criminals to listen now. On Sunday, December 20th, 1959, Don McLeod arrived at the home of Cliff Walker bright and early. They had a planned hunting trip, but instead of seeing Cliff waiting for him as he expected, Don found Cliff his wife Christine, and one of their children dead on the floor. Authorities would later find their second child in the bathroom, also having been murdered. The case remains unsolved, though many believe the prime suspects are Dick Hickok and Perry Smith, the men convicted and executed for the murders of the Clutter family, made famous in Truman Capote's work in Cold Blood. This case does describe violence against children, and listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today is Allie. How are you, Allie? I am doing well. How are you? I'm okay. I have to say that spring started here and then it went away and now it's winter again. So I'm a little down about the weather. But other than that, I'm good. See, we had the same thing. Winter visited us for a couple of days and now it's back to summer weather. I will take your weather over this winter weather. I am freezing right now. The case we're covering tonight is one that I have wanted to cover, and I even mentioned it back when we covered the Clutter murders. Tonight, we're going to first talk about the Walker family murder, and then we'll go over the suspects who aren't Dick Hickok and Perry Smith, and then we'll lay out the case against Hickok and Smith. So let's start with the family. Cliff Walker was 25 years old, and his wife, Christine, was 24 at the time of their murders. They had met in their small hometown of Arcadia, Florida. Cliff was quiet, but Christine was outgoing and popular in high school, very beautiful, and she had a series of boyfriends. Some of them had even proposed to her, but she said no to all of them except for Cliff. She was a drum majorette with the marching band, and she kept her uniform in a cedar chest in the house with the hopes that her daughter would wear it one day. In 1954, they married when Christine was 19 and Cliff was 20, so at the time of their deaths, they were married for about five years. Two years into their marriage, they had their son Jimmy, and about a year after that, they had a daughter named Debbie, and around the time Jimmy was born, they moved to Osprey, Florida, which is about an hour west of their hometown, to give a better geographic area for you all. Osprey is about 20-25 minutes south of Sarasota. Cliff had gotten a job on the Palmer Ranch, which was a 14,000-acre ranch. A number of ranch hands lived and worked on the property, but all the houses were really spread out on the property. 
it was definitely rural living with the nearest neighbor being a mile away, but they were able to live in the house for free. It was part of Cliff's compensation for working on the ranch. On Friday, December 18, 1959, Christine sent off a letter to her mother telling her she was looking forward to getting together with her for Christmas in a few days and that she had something to tell her. On the Saturday morning, the 19th, the family loaded up into their car and went grocery shopping. After they shopped, their plan was to go car shopping up in Sarasota. They were looking at a 1956 two-tone Chevy at one lot and they test drove a Hudson jet at another. The family walked to a nearby shop to grab a quick lunch, candy for the kids and cigarettes for Cliff. But they had to come back to the dealership because one of the kids had dropped the keys to the family car out of the window during the test drive. They stopped at the garage before heading over to a friend's house. This friend, Don McLeod, he also lived and worked on the Palmer Ranch with his wife. Cliff and Don went hunting while Christine and the kids stayed at the house with Don's wife, Lucy. This was around two in the afternoon. The men weren't gone long, only about an hour and a half, and they came back to the house with plans to go back out early the next morning to hunt for hogs. While Christine was talking to Lucy and the men were out hunting, she asked to use the phone. She called a relative, and the only thing of note that Lucy overheard was that Christine told this relative that she and Cliff were planning on trading their car. This seems pretty minor, but we are going to circle back to this later. Something that's not clear to me is that the couple had a second car at the McLeod's home. In some reports, it's called Cliff's Jeep. In another, it just says it was a Jeep. Now, it doesn't make sense that they went to pick it up at their home before going to the McLeod's because the McLeod's lived on the side of the ranch closest to Sarasota, whereas the Walkers lived clear on the other side of the ranch. Plus, the family still had groceries in the car, so it was unlikely they had stopped home. My guess is this was a work Jeep available for any ranch hand that needed it. Cliff and Don loaded this Jeep up with some cattle feed Cliff needed to take down to their end of the ranch. The kids told Christine that they wanted to ride back home with their dad in the Jeep, so she took them up to the barn and dropped them off with their dad before she left and headed home. This was 3.45. She headed home in the family car. Ten minutes later, she pulled into a gas station to put air in her tires, and it's estimated it would have taken her another ten minutes to get home, arriving there around 4.05. At 3.50, Cliff made a phone call from the McLeod home, but the person he called didn't answer, so we don't know who it was. He and the kids were invited to stay a little longer, but he noted that it was nearly four o'clock and he had to get going. We don't know if he was just wanting to get home for dinner or if the family had something going on that evening that he had to be home for. On the way home, Cliff pulled into the same gas station that Christine had stopped at, and I read it was also to put air in the tires. It was around 4.15, which put him and the kids home sometime between 4.30 and 4.45. We can only guess as to what happened next. The family was last seen alive, 15 minutes apart, at that gas station. Now, Christine would normally park her car in the space closest to the entrance of the home and would have to assume that with a car full of groceries, this wouldn't have been something that she would have veered from. But she did in this case. Her car was parked just past that, leaving enough space for another car. Now, it has been theorised that someone was already parked in that spot. This would later be backed up by an eyewitness. There was a local man flying his small plane over the house around 4.20 that day, and he saw two cars. Inside the home, Christine hung up her purse, she put a Christmas card that she received that day on the fridge, and started to put away the groceries. So we know that she wasn't immediately alarmed. 
if there was someone in her parking space, she likely invited them in, possibly so they could wait for Cliff, and then she went about her normal tasks while they were in the home. For a lot of people, this would point towards someone they knew. I mean, who invites a stranger into their home? Well, Christine would have. She was personable and friendly and trusting. If someone came by and said that they were there to meet Cliff or had some other pretense for stopping by, she would have invited them in. But whether Christine knew them or not, her trust would be violated. Christine was physically attacked by the visitor. In spite of being overpowered and struck in the face, she fought back, and she fought back hard. One of her high-heeled shoes was found bloodied from her beating her attacker with it. The person who attacked her very well walked out of there with scratches and bruises. The two eventually ended up in Jimmy's room, where she was raped on his bed. She was then shot in the head, but it was a superficial wound not hitting her skull. My guess is she was still fighting him off, and he couldn't get a good shot, even though he was up close. She moved or pushed the gun away at that last moment. There are two theories I've seen as to what happened next. One is that the man then killed Christine with a second shot and dragged her body into the hallway towards the living room, and he began cleaning up the scene. The covers on Jimmy's bed were pulled up over the pillow, which hid the blood, and some of the blood was wiped off of her legs. Now, we don't know the reason why he was cleaning the blood off her legs. This was well before DNA, so he wouldn't have had to worry about leaving his own blood behind. The best they had was broad blood typing, which didn't narrow things down much. And with this theory, he was then interrupted with Cliff's arrival home in the process of cleaning up. Because the cattle feed was found still in the Jeep, it seems Cliff went to take the kids directly into the house. Or maybe since he saw a car parked in front, he decided to go straight in to say hi to the visitor. We know he wouldn't have been terribly alarmed at this point, though, because one, he brought the kids in with him, and second, he left a loaded hunting rifle in the car. If he thought there was anything amiss with there being a visitor there, he would have left the kids in the Jeep and taken the gun. Cliff generally entered the house through the back door that led to the kitchen, and in fact, this is where the Jeep was parked. It was parked near the rear of the house. But we know that he actually went through the front door, so it's possible that the back door was locked. He was shot as he walked in the house from some distance, and he was killed instantly. Based on the blood evidence on both sides of the door, he didn't seem like he even had a chance to close the door behind him. So that's one theory of how it happened. The second theory is that Cliff interrupted the process earlier, after the first shot, but before the second to Christine. When he was killed coming through the door, Christine, who was still alive, ran over to him and was killed there and then dragged away from him. Now I'm going to warn you, this is where it gets a little bit more brutal because the children were not spared. The next shot was at little Jimmy he would have been seriously injured by the first shot, but not dead. He was found curled up next to his father, and based on the blood evidence, it's assumed he was alive, and he was crawling over to his father when he was shot two more times before he died. Then there's little Debbie. Based on the blood evidence here, it's believed that she went over to where her mother's body was, the killer took little Jimmy's hat and covered Debbie's head before firing a shot. Some may think the hat was to cover her because he couldn't stand what he was about to do, but I don't think that's why he did it, considering what came next. The first shot didn't kill the little girl, and it's believed he attempted to shoot her again, but he was out of bullets. So then he took her to the bathroom, he filled the tub with a few inches of water, and he drowned her. The family was discovered the next morning when Don McLeod arrived at 5.30 to pick Cliff up for hunting. He found the house still and the doors were locked. He expected Cliff to be waiting for him, if not outside already, at least at the window watching for him. 
He looked in the windows and didn't see any movement. His first thought was that something had happened, something like the pilot light on the heater went out and they were all dead from the gas. This wasn't something that happened every day, but it wasn't unheard of. He cut the screen on the porch and used his knife to unlock the hook-style lock. He entered through the kitchen and he could see Christine's feet. He ran over to see a bloody scene with three of the family members obviously dead. It's unclear that he even processed that there were three of them and not all four because he turned and ran out. He wasn't sure the house was secure to start with. The killer could have still been in the house and obviously he needed to call for help. He had his trailer hitched to his truck, so he took the jeep that Cliff had taken to the house instead. The trailer was only going to slow him down on those rural dirt roads. At 5.45am, a call went through to the Sarasota Police Department, who then sent word to the county sheriff. A deputy met Don McLeod at the grocery store near the ranch where he had called from, and he led them back to where the Walker home was. By the time the sheriff himself arrived, his deputies were already there collecting evidence, though, unfortunately, they also destroyed some. When the initial deputy pulled up, he parked right next to Christine's car, which is the same spot it's believed her killer parked. So tire treads to determine the possible vehicle were completely obscured. There were some clues left behind, though. A fingerprint was taken from the faucet of the bathtub. Initially thought to be a thumb and fingerprint, it was possibly actually a palm print. There were bloody boot prints found in a few spots, but at least one of these prints was later proven to have been left by a deputy who was walking through the scene. There was semen on Christine's underwear, which, while not helpful in 1959, investigators had the forethought to store it in the event there would one day be a way to match it to a suspect. A dark hair inconsistent with family members was found near the bathtub, and a blonde hair on the long side was found inside Christine's dress. Part of a cigarette wrapper was found, not from the brand that Cliff smoked. Because it was on the floor in the middle of the blood, it's believed it was left there by the killer, not from a previous visit from someone else. The murder weapon wasn't found, but 722 caliber shell casings were found. 22 caliber guns, though, in a rural area like this would have been super common. Robbery was ruled out as a motive almost right away. The family didn't have much to steal, and anyone looking at the small cottage they lived in wouldn't have thought they did. But items were still taken. Cliff cigarettes and his pocket knife. If he had cash on him, that was also taken. It was believed the marriage certificate was taken, but it was decades later found by family members in a box of items and Christine's majorette uniform was also taken. When the family's belongings were packed up and delivered to Christine's mother after the murders, she opened the cedar chest to find the uniform gone, and the plastic Christine had it wrapped in was left behind. On December 22nd, close to 500 people gathered for the family funeral in Arcadia. The ranch Cliff worked at offered a reward, but that reward was never collected on because the Walker family murders remains unsolved. A few months after the murders, a woman and her daughter went out to a shed on their property and they found bloodied clothes. Two shirts and a skirt were initially found and a search of the shed found a woman's shirt and a handkerchief. One of the shirts was confirmed to be Cliff's and it's thought the clothes were taken by the murderer to clean himself off with so he wouldn't be seen covered in blood. The shed though was a mile or two away from the house which further confirms that the killer had a car. It's unlikely he would have walked that far with bloodied clothes before stashing them. And we will discuss the suspects in this case after a word from today's sponsor. So my friend has had a few dates with this guy she met on eHarmony, and she was surprised by how compatible she was with him. 
They've had some great dates that turn into hour-long telephone conversations right after. Obviously, eHarmony knows what they're doing. eHarmony takes the steps that other dating apps don't in order to find you a more compatible match. I know other people who have tried other dating apps and really the matches aren't people who they're looking for. They're not looking for the same long and meaningful relationship or they're ghosted and never find out why. eHarmony works to stop all of that. They use decades of science, data and psychological research to send you the right matches. And they have helped over a million real people find real matches. Right now, our listeners can get a free month with eHarmony when you sign up for a three-month subscription. Enter our code SITE at checkout. Stop waiting and start your journey to a satisfying and meaningful relationship. It can be fun to play around with online dating apps, but when you're ready to fall in love with someone and have a meaningful relationship, there's one app that's built to bring you real love, and that's eHarmony. Come see how eHarmony can change your life. Go to eHarmony.com and get started. Enter code SITE at checkout. When we look at suspects, we have a few to discuss here. In the first 50 years of this crime, over 500 potential suspects were identified. And obviously, we're not going into 500 various suspects. We're just going to cover the strongest ones. And we'll start with the person who confessed to doing it. Emmett Monroe Spencer was convicted of killing Johnny T. Keene in April of 1960, four months after the Walker murders. He was caught when he, his girlfriend, and a hitchhiker were pulled over near Key West, Florida, and Spencer produced Keene's driver's license as his ID. The trooper made a comment about how Spencer looked quite a bit younger and thinner than described on the ID, at which time Spencer took off at a high rate of speed. A chase and a gunfight ended with the trooper being wounded and Spencer being arrested. The police then went to the address on the ID, and they found Keene bludgeoned to death with a hammer. It's also pretty much confirmed that Spencer killed two additional people, a bartender named Leon Hamill and a waitress named Virginia Tomlinson from Jacksonville Beach. They had traveled with him and his girlfriend at some point. He would say that Leon killed Johnny Keene and he killed Leon in some kind of retribution, He was not charged in those cases, though, only the Keene murder. Spencer would eventually be given the nickname the Dream Killer because he claimed to have dreams about seven additional murders. By the end of 1964, he will have expressed knowledge of 36 murders that he was either present during or he had committed himself, though he eventually dropped the I dreamed about them line. But he confessed to murders we know he didn't commit, like confessing to the murder of someone who was actually still alive. So not all of these confessions were in any way valid. Spencer's girlfriend who was with him while he traveled across the country and through Florida was Mary Catherine Hampton. She says she was essentially his prisoner during all of this. She testified against him in the Johnny Keene murder case, and he was convicted and sentenced to death. One thing he did to get back at her was implicate her in his confessions. Mary was actually convicted of helping him with two murders in Louisiana and given a life sentence. She was freed when F. Lee Bailey took on her case based on the very simple idea that he could prove that she was in Florida when the Louisiana murders occurred. Due to partly her relatively low IQ, she had trouble advocating for herself within the court system. One of the murders he tried to implicate Mary in was the Walker murders. He gave a fairly detailed confession that said Mary had seen Christine at the grocery store and they followed her home with a third person. They walked up to the door and Spencer punched Christine while still on the porch. There is some evidence there was a struggle on the porch, though taken with the other evidence, it looks more to me like Christine may have been trying to escape versus having been initially attacked there. He claims that Mary participated in a sex act with Christine. 
Spencer was the one who shot Cliff, and Cliff was actually shot first. Christine had said her husband would kill him, which tipped him off that Cliff was on his way home, so he waited for him. Christine was killed second, followed by the two children. Now, there is a problem with his confession. He knew a lot of the specific details, but got a lot wrong as well. But how could he have known so many details? Well, the Sheriff's Department, they didn't have a photographer available to take crime scene photos, so they made a deal with a local paper. If they would send the photographer over to take the pictures, their reporter would have an exclusive on the details of the crime. So the amount of very specific information that ended up in the papers was substantial, and it included all the graphic crime scene photographs. It seems Spencer was able to glean most of his information from the news reports and then made some educated guesses on the other parts. Right off, the sheriff thought he was lying. Further investigation showed that Spencer was in California on Christmas Day. Working backwards, they found that he wasn't in Florida to have committed the murders six days before Christmas. A person always worth looking at in a crime like this is the person who found the bodies. And in this case, that was Don McLeod. And he would remain in the back of some minds as a suspect until he was later cleared through DNA. The semen collected from Christine's underwear was tested in 2004. There are some issues with the sample. It is degraded. It is possibly contaminated. And it is almost surely a mixture of Christine's DNA and the attacker's. But no points in it match Don. Don did take and pass more than one polygraph, but 1959 polygraphs weren't terribly reliable. Not that we're saying they're terribly reliable today, but back then the training on them was given by the company that sold them and it wouldn't even be considered a course. We're talking an hour or so rundown of how to work the machine. So while these various suspects we're talking about were polygraphed, with some failing and some passing, the results really don't matter except to say that they mattered a little to the investigators early on. So they would dig a little more if someone failed and ease up a little if they passed. But as the case grew cold, new detectives looking at the case would disregard these results entirely. So that's what we're going to do. Broadly speaking, though, Don finding them is really the only thing that made him a suspect. If the crime happened the way the authorities think it did, how did he get from his property to the Walker property in time to attack Christine? He and Cliff would have been leaving from the same location. Even with Cliff stopping on his way home, Don had to have known he wasn't that far behind him. He knew there was only a short window where Christine would be alone. So the idea that he raced out of there, jumped on a maybe five to ten minute window to attack Christine, it doesn't make sense. The entire timeline would have to be tossed out to make Don a viable suspect. There are just too many other things that point to the timeline being accurate for me to be ready to scrap it and start over with a brand new theory and a brand new timeline. We talk about victimology as a way to look at the victim's life, their likelihood of being a victim, and we use that to narrow down the person or type of person who may have been in their lives to commit these murders. This next part is going to focus on the idea that the Walkers knew the person who killed them because that was the prevailing theory at the time. Cliff was known as a really down-to-earth good guy. He wasn't rowdy, he didn't drink much, if at all. Smoking cigarettes was his biggest vice, but in 1959, smoking was significantly more common than it is today. In 1965, the first year smoking rates were tracked, 42% of Americans smoked compared to the 17% today. Christine, on the other hand, didn't have a squeaky clean reputation and we can see victimology starting to turn into victim blaming, at least as far as the public was concerned. Some of Christine's friends told authorities that she dressed in a way to show off her figure 
and she liked the attention she got from men when she wore short shorts and tight shirts. They also said she had abortions, and it's reported she did have two miscarriages after Debbie was born, the insinuation there being that her miscarriages were actually abortions. The belief that the marriage certificate had been taken and that Christine's prized uniform was taken as well had many believe that this was someone known to Christine who had an issue with her marriage to Cliff. And people were gossiping that she brought on some unwanted or possibly wanted advances. In this, we see Christine turn from a victim into, well, she was asking for it, right in front of our eyes. In May 1963, a man named Curtis McCall came to the police attention when his cousin told them that Curtis was having an affair with Christine. According to the cousin, Curtis, who was then 21, had dated Christine in high school and their relationship did not end when she married Cliff. Another thing that implicated Curtis was that he owned a 22 caliber pistol that he told police he had sold already. So they asked, who did he sell it to? And he couldn't remember. He later worked as a highway patrol dispatcher and he attacked a man who a trooper had pulled over. And it was said that he was in such a blind rage that the trooper had to hit Curtis to get him to stop attacking this man and that Curtis didn't even remember hitting the man. So he was known to be violent. This idea of an extramarital affair fits this view that people were developing of Christine as being a little loose. Someone claimed she had gone to Curtis's house when Cliff was at a rodeo a few weeks before the murders, and that days before, they were spotted alone in a car together. In his defense, he said he had never dated Christine, not in high school, not after, certainly not while she was married. He hadn't seen her much before the murders, except one time a few weeks before when she came by the house, but Cliff was with her, and that they were just never in a car alone together. Curtis or someone like Curtis would fit if we're looking at someone close to the family. Christine was targeted. She was beaten and raped before being shot. Her drum majorette uniform was taken. It's not unheard of for killers unknown to the family to take a trophy, but why this uniform? It wasn't a ring or a small trinket, but it was something Christine was incredibly proud of and would pull out to show people. She stored it in her cedar chest. If a killer unknown to the family went rifling through the chest, why would they take that? The only possibility that I think would explain the uniform being taken by an unknown killer would be that in the home, there were pictures of Christine wearing that uniform. So if Christine did let someone into the house that she didn't know or she didn't know them well, and that person commented on the photo, she may have actually gotten the uniform out to show it off. This was something she would have done. And then he took it disposing of it so no one would connect the dress being out with a visitor being in the home chatting with Christine. But again, it doesn't entirely fit that this would have been an unknown killer who would have taken her most prized possession that isn't something you would think someone would normally take. But to go further with the someone they knew theory, Cliff's cousin Albert came under suspicion Elbert's reputation was rowdy when sober, but belligerent when drunk. He considered himself very close to Cliff and had even lived with Cliff and Christine for a short period when he got out of the service a year before the murders. He put himself on the investigator's radar with his behaviour from the day the bodies were found and his behaviour at the funeral. The first thing he did was come into town unexpectedly the day the bodies were found. He said he was coming to talk to Cliff about a party Cliff and Christine were hosting at their house for Christmas. This didn't ring true, though, because it's known the Walkers planned on going back to Arcadia for Christmas, and Christine even referenced as much in the letter that she sent to her mother. So right off, this was suspicious. He was in town for no apparent reason. 
When in town, he stopped at the gas station and asked two men if they knew where Cliff lived. Now, you may recall from a few seconds ago when we said that Albert had lived with the family previously. He surely didn't need directions. It comes across to investigators that he was setting up someone to verify that he had just gotten into town that day after the murders happened. Word of the murders by that point had spread, so Elbert was told that they were dead when he asked for directions. They led him to where the house was because, for all they knew at the time, he didn't know where the house was, and then at the house, Elbert fell apart. He started crying, he was covering his face with his arms, and just really acting as distraught as someone would feel. Then at the funeral, he continued with this. He was sobbing and even fainting. Family members reportedly felt like he was putting on an act. The gossip was that he was secretly, or not so secretly, in love with Christine. Three years after the murders, investigators went to Elbert again to question him further, and he made a comment about Jimmy crawling over to his father. That was never published in the papers, Just the information that Jimmy was found curled up to Cliff. So you have to wonder how he knew this. But it also seems like something that he could have filled in the blanks himself or possibly it was information that wasn't in the papers but was discussed within the family. The family are occasionally given more information than the public is when it comes to these investigations. All we know is he didn't get it from the papers. We don't know that he didn't get it from the family members when they were all sitting around chatting. In the 1980s, he was interviewed and polygraphed and investigators all but ruled him out. They acknowledged that he would likely be looked at again should the case remain open. And that would prove to be true when the DNA tests were being run. He willingly provided his DNA to be tested against the sample We already talked about the iffy condition of the DNA from the semen, but it did rule out Elbert. The next suspect is a neighbor, Wilbur Tucker, who died in 1963. Wilbur was 65 years old at the time and retired. He lived just a mile from the Walkers, which made him their closest neighbor, and he was a fairly regular visitor for a while. A friend told investigators that Wilbur was obsessed with Christine and talked about her all the time, and he was always finding a reason to go over to the house. But repeatedly, he crossed the line with Christine by grabbing her, trying to kiss her, and generally making unwanted advances and sexually harassing her. It went to the point that Christine was genuinely afraid of him, and she told Cliff about it. Now, Cliff's initial impulse was to kill Wilbur, but instead he just told him to stay away from his wife and stay away from his house. It's unclear how far in advance of the murders this confrontation occurred. As for the night of the murders, Wilbur's alibi doesn't pick up until after the murders would have happened. He was in Sarasota for dinner with a friend after 5, but before 7. Then by 7.45, he was in Bradenton playing violin with the West Coast Symphony Orchestra. No one reported him acting oddly at any of these events. It would be really great if they could pinpoint that dinner a little more, Because if it was at 5, then no way. He couldn't have murdered the family around 4.30, cleaned up, and been a half hour away, ready for dinner by 5. But if it was more like 5.45, 6 o'clock, then yeah, it could have been enough time. The last named suspect was a man named Stanley Muck. Stanley was a meter reader for an electrical company, so he was... So he was a regular sight in various neighbourhoods in the area. He was a meter reader for the Walker House. How he came under suspicion is not just because he was their meter reader. He was also the meter reader for the house where there was another murder just months before. On August 7, 1959, the body of 22-year-old Chandler Steffens was found in the family's new rental house by his wife, Betty. They had married in high school, but Betty had left him and filed for divorce earlier in 1959. 
But the couple was on the path of reconciling and Betty and their children were planning to move back with Chandler. So he moved out of the apartment and into the rental house in anticipation for the family getting back together. On August 5th, Chandler's first night in the house, he woke to smoke. The living room sofa was on fire. He tried to put it out and called the fire department. There was no indication of what started the fire, but with what's to come, it seems like it may have been a crude murder attempt. On August 6th, Chandler and Betty spent some time together shopping. She went back to her parents' house and Chandler went back to the rental home. When he didn't call Betty the next day as promised, she stopped by the house and found Chandler dead. He'd been beaten, tired, stabbed and tortured. His face was covered with strips of surgical tape, leaving just enough space for him to breathe. So here they have two gruesome murders within a few months in the greater Sarasota area. The victims have one person in common, their meter reader. Suspicions were further raised when they discovered that Stanley had previously been treated by a psychiatrist for homicidal impulses toward his own family. After the murders of the Walkers, Stanley, who remembered the children from doing his rounds, Stanley became very distraught and fearful. He had a breakdown and was committed to an asylum for a period of time for treatment. Stanley died in 1997. From 1959 until today, no one has been able to find a solid link between him and either of the murders, except that he was the meter reader for both. So the next suspects we're going to talk about are the unnamed suspects. And there is an unknown suspect that is connected more to Cliff than to Christine. On the day before the murders, while Cliff's mother was visiting, Christine complained that Cliff had gotten into a fight the day before. Before she could give any details, Cliff had walked in and Christine just dropped the subject. Then while out getting groceries the next day on the day of the murder, Christine was chatting with the clerk at the grocery store and told her the same thing. Whether she gave more details than that, we don't know for sure. They certainly haven't released it if she did, but from the reporting on it, it doesn't seem like there were more details than that Cliff had gotten in a fight before. Whatever happened with Cliff on Thursday, it was significant enough that Christine complained about it twice in the next two days to other people. But was it significant enough that the other person would come to the home and attack and kill the family? Without more information, uh, this is going to be one of those open questions in this case. In August 1994, a woman called the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office to tell them that a man, a regular customer of hers where she tended bar, he confessed that he killed a family in Osbury many years ago when he was a young man, and he cried while he told her about it. She called from Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. She didn't give the man's name as far as it's been reported, but she said he was white in his 60s and worked odd jobs in the area. Now, she didn't give her name either or a way to get back in touch with her. She said she'd call back later with more information, but she never did. If this was a true accounting and not just a prank, the man would have been 25 to 35 years of age at the time of the murders, and that's assuming that he was in his 60s when he confessed to her. He would be 84 to 94 years of age now if he's still alive. Now it's possible if he told one person, he may have told more than one person. In late 2017, we covered the Clutter family murders and we mentioned the Walkers and that Perry Smith and Dick Hickok were suspects early on in the case. They are currently, from what I have been reading, the prime suspects today. Perry told Truman Capote that he had read about the Walker murders in the paper and thought it was someone who had heard about the Clutter murders from the month before and was being a copycat. So even Perry Smith was pointing out how similar these crimes are. For those who don't remember the Clutter episode or for some baffling reason opted not to listen to it, here's the basic rundown. In November 1959, Dick Hickok and Perry Smith broke into the home of Herb Clutter in rural Kansas. 
Believing there was a large amount of money on site, the plan was to rob the family. When there was no money, they ended up tying up and murdering Herb, his wife Bonnie, and their two teen children, Nancy and Kenyon. Dick later said that they almost turned away, but he was actually motivated to go through with the robbery because he had fantasized about raping Nancy Clutter, the teen daughter. And that was his real motivation to go through with the plan. Perry Smith, who had extremely strong anti-rape viewpoints for a sociopath, he wouldn't let him do it and was ready to fight him to prevent it. After the murders, they ran to Mexico, but then returned to the United States, finding themselves in Miami in December. When they were questioned about the Walker murders, they denied participation and said they were in Miami. For those who don't know Florida geography, Miami is a good four hours away and on the other side of the state. An investigation would show, however, that they were very likely actually in the Sarasota area at the time of the murders. They checked out of their Miami motel on the morning of the murders, and witnesses reported seeing them in Sarasota later that day, including at a store less than 10 miles from the Walker home. As for how they're sure they were Dick and Perry, well, obviously they can't be 100% sure, but the two had an odd couple appearance. Dick was tall and fair, and Perry was short and dark. The most telling sighting is one that was reported before anyone even knew to be on the lookout for Dick and Perry. The day after the murders, two men fitting their description stopped near Arcadia asking for directions that would take them around Arcadia rather than through it. The tall blonde one had visible scratches and bruises. The witness also identified the car they were in as a Chevy with the numbers 1 and 6 being part of the license plate, and that's consistent with the vehicle we know they were driving at the time. This information was reported to the police in relation to the murders of the Walkers. So a month later, when Dick and Perry were identified and their pictures were made available, the witness identified Dick as being the tall one with the scratched-up face. And that's only one out of three or four other witness reports of a short, dark-haired man in a cowboy hat traveling with a tall blonde man with a scratched-up face. And these reports were gradually moving further and further away from Osprey, which is what you would expect as they moved away from the crime scene. Remember how Christine said on the phone that they were planning on trading their car? Well... The car that Dick and Perry were driving was the exact type of car the family were looking at purchasing. If they were in town looking for work and there were some witness reports of men looking like they were asking around about work, they would have been looking at car dealerships and automotive garages because that's the work they did. Perry had worked as a car painter and Dick was a competent mechanic. Perhaps they ran into the walkers in town and knew they were looking for a car. Maybe the ruse was to go to their house to talk over a car deal, trading one car for the other. The car the men had was stolen, so trading it for another car would likely be something they would want to do to stay further under the radar. While at the house with Christine waiting on Cliff, Dick could have used his conman routine to put her at ease before attacking her. She wouldn't have been the first person he sexually assaulted. Perry would try to stop it, or maybe he wouldn't. Dick was bigger than he was. Perry also told Trim and Capote that during their time on the run, he always believed that he and Dick would be fine as long as they stuck together. It was if they split up that things would go wrong. Perry was rather superstitious, so this wasn't just a deduction, but rather a feeling he had. If he thought stopping Dick from raping Christine would jeopardise his connection to Dick, he may not have. He absolutely cared more about self-preservation than about Christine's well-being. It's also possible that Dick went to the house alone and that Perry didn't know what happened until after it happened. But one of the issues between the men at the clutter home was that Dick wouldn't go through with the murders. He said they had to kill the family, but when it came to to time to do it he just stood there 
Perry first said Dick had shot the two women at the Cotter home, but later said he only said that to get back at Dick for confessing. It was Perry that actually killed them all. The brutal murder of this family, particularly that of little Debbie, it sounds much more like Perry. Also, when Perry was arrested, he had a pocket knife with a similar design as was what was reported stolen from the Walker home. Again, stealing small items from the scene was also something Perry did at the Clutter home. I saw one report saying the cat eye poor boot print that was found at the scene of the Walker home was the same boot print that was left at the Clutter home. Now, if this was true, it's irrelevant because we know Perry didn't have those boots with him in Florida. He had these shipped to Las Vegas post office with his other belongings. There are some notable similarities, and I'm sure those who've listened to both episodes have already picked them out. Both were killed with gunshots to the head in their own home. Both crimes were at isolated rural homes. There was a rape in one case and a rape that was stopped in the other. Boot prints were left behind, and some of the prints at the Walker house had the right print more substantial than the left, which is consistent with Perry's limp. The only things taken were token items. Before the clutter murders, Perry and Dick had gone shopping for supplies, and after they buried the evidence in a field. In the Walker case, we know they went shopping that day, and the killer stashed bloody clothes away from the scene. In late 2012, after attempts to get DNA from relatives of Dick and Perry failed for a number of reasons, The two were exhumed so DNA samples could be taken and tested against the semen left at the scene. In February 2013, word came that Perry's DNA did not match. Now, this was to be expected because even if the pair was involved, we know Perry would not have been the one who raped Christine. Yeah, he'd murder innocent little babies for sure, but he wouldn't have raped her. That's the complexity that is Perry Smith. But the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, who was handling the testing, was unable to extract DNA from Dick Hickok's remains. They had a private lab try, but the results were inconclusive. The sample was just too degraded in the nearly 50 years since the men's deaths. These kind of cases are the most heartbreaking for me, like the Clutter family and and this case. And we have some more unsolved family murders to come up this year. But for a whole family to be killed in what seems like a random attack, but I'm not sold on that. I know that we've said that Christine would let people in, but it just seemed too casual. I think that they would know the person who killed them, or at least know of the person. I really feel like Dick Hickok and Perry Smith are viable suspects, but like you said, it's so much more likely that it was someone they knew and that Christine felt comfortable with to have in her home without her husband there. And the fact she went about her normal duty, she put groceries away, she hung her purse up. It wasn't like she was sitting there entertaining them. That's what makes me think that she knew the person. Dick Hickok and Perry Smith They were brutal murderers. The person or persons responsible for the Walker family murders was also a brutal murderer. I think you'll find just as many people who think Dick and Perry are guilty as people who think it was someone who knew the family. Like Allie and I were kind of split within ourselves about this. Regardless, Dick and Perry gave false alibi to investigators and to Truman Capote for where they were at the time. They claimed they were in the Miami hotel, but we know they checked out. So why did they lie? It's possible that they were trying to cover up their involvement in the Walker murders. It's possible they were involved in another crime. At this point, with the degraded DNA, we'll probably never know. <laughs> <laughs> 